Amen. Well, we're looking at God's Word as we do every Sunday, uh, particularly in this series, looking at the Old Testament as a firm foundation. Uh, If you're in our Banding Together reading plans, you're reading through a chunk of the Old Testament this summer, and uh, we're right about the midpoint of the summer. And so uh, if, if you have drifted, this would be a great time for a course correction, get back in God's Word, back into prayer, back into those uh, disciplines. It's easy to get off track with vacations and with the disruption in the summer schedule and with kids not going to school, and kids can get out of, out of their routines as well. So this is a great opportunity at that midpoint of summer to realize, hey, it's about halfway over. Let's make sure we're not drifting from God as we go through those changes. And as we move through this series, we're just over the halfway point. Uh, so far, we've looked at a number of different things as we've considered the Old Testament as a firm foundation, as a source of solid truths in a shifting world. And so we got things started with a couple of Linwood's core values, that those core values are foundational for who we are as a body of Christ, and we looked at centering our lives on the Word and at caring for each other. We also talked about the difference a dad makes and how the difference a heavenly father makes in our lives and the reparenting of the church and all of those things. And then last week we had a treat as Pastor Keith shared wonderfully from the book of Daniel in a message titled, Life in a Lion's Den. And I just loved sitting, taking notes and and thinking through the principles and the priorities that were shared. And I even heard an amen or two, and I just want to clear the air. Like, if you ever want to say amen in one of my messages, you are welcome to do that. I preached in a West Virginia church for almost three years, and at first I had to get used to it because it was alarming. There were so many amens, and I even got a little, that's right, come on, every now and then thrown in there, and at first it would disrupt me and kind of throw me off, and then it started to kind of feed me. So there's a few of you that have mentioned, well, Pastor Mark, we wouldn't mind if you moved around a little bit more and got a little more excited. Well, you want to get me excited, give me some amens, give me some that's rights, give me some come ons, and uh, we'll be just fine. Thank you. (laughs) But uh, I love the bottom line last week, and it kind of is a bridge into our message today that uh, a Christ follower's first priority is allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, and so that bottom line that, that a Christian's first and foremost loyal to Jesus Christ is, is what comes out of the foundation that is laid for us in the Old Testament. As we come in as New Testament believers, we have to keep that in mind and we have to rely on that. Over these next three weeks, today and the next two weeks, we're going to examine an interplay that I find very fascinating and very foundational to our lives as followers of Christ. The idea that over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we hear two refrains. First is, fear God, and the second is, fear not. Fear God and fear not. Over and over, the people of God are told to fear God. That's what we'll talk about today. But interestingly enough, every time God shows up, the message from the messenger is, fear not. Don't be afraid of God, but fear God. And so, if that has ever caused a little muddying of the waters in your mind, we'll try to clear that up here as we round the corner and bring this uh, series to a close. We're also going to look at Linwood's third chord value, leaving a legacy of faith. So that gives you a little bit of a roadmap, and today we're talking about this exhortation, fear God. It 
shows up dozens of times in the Old Testament, a number of times in the New Testament as well, in a number of different forms. Sometimes it's fear the Lord. Sometimes it's the exhortation to fear God. Sometimes it's in the negative sense that so-and-so did not fear the Lord, or the fear of the Lord was not with them, or the fear of God was not among the people at that time. And so we see this concept pop up a number of different times in Scripture. And we also see that this is as foundational a concept as any that you will find in God's Word. The idea of fearing God, fearing the Lord. And it unlocks blessing and protection and provision and grace and peace. It unlocks all of these things for the people that fear God. And so we'll talk about what that means, and we'll talk about how we do it and why we do it. And one of the earlier and more robust teachings on the subject comes in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So if you're in the room with us today, you can pick up one of the Bibles. They're in the seats in front of you. If you need one, you can turn to page 290. We'll be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 10. For those of you online, we're so glad you found us. You're welcome to follow along with the uh, scriptures on the screens, or if you have a Bible nearby, pick that up and uh, maybe take a note or two. Um, and so we'll be in the book of Deuteronomy today, and Deuteronomy is, is one of the harder books of the Bible to spell, uh, if you've noticed. Once I got through with seminary, I kind of had it figured out. Um, but, but it really is it's a, it's a powerful book. It summarizes so much of God's revelation to the people of God through his prophet Moses just before they take the promised land. And so that's a little bit of the context. The English Standard Version Study Bible tells me that it's, it comes off kind of like a sermon or maybe a collection of sermons. And so I'm a preacher that likes to preach in series. And I thought, well, maybe Moses put together a sermon series, called it Deuteronomy for some reason. And uh, I don't think he actually called it Deuteronomy at all, but that's what we've come to call it. And that's what these, this book of the Bible represents are sort of like a commencement address that Moses is giving his people. He knows his time is just about up. He knows that he's not entering the promised land with the people of God. And there are a number of things that he wants to make sure that they understand, a number of things that he wants to make sure they remember. And so a summary of the book of Deuteronomy would be first continue the covenant Moses wants to make sure you continue that covenant, that you are faithful to that covenant. God has entered into a covenant with the people of God, with those that are of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you need to keep your end of the bargain. It's, it's really a one-sided covenant. He has done so much, and He promises so much, and we have very little in comparison that we need to do. Make sure you keep the covenant. And so you see that theme throughout. There's also kind of leading out of that is a, a theme to trust God and obey God. Trust God and obey God. You'll see that over and over through Deuteronomy and a, a continual exhortation to remember. Remember, remember, remember. Remember the good things God has done. Remember what he did to, the, to Egypt as he led you out of Egypt. Remember that he parted the Red Sea in front of you. Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget. Whatever you do, don't forget. And the darkest seasons of my life have been seasons when I have forgotten how good God has been to me, when I have allowed my mind to become clouded so that I couldn't remember the good things that God has done. And so there's tremendous power in this exhortation to remember, and we see it over and over. This passage that we're going to look at today 
contains the exhortation to fear God, which pops up eight times in the book of Deuteronomy and two times in the passage that we're looking at today. And so to kind of set the table for you, if you haven't read Deuteronomy recently, chapter 9 really contains a number of reminders. In the early part of chapter 10, they're all reminders that are setting up the teaching that we're about to get here. So the first idea in chapter 9 is that, that we were saved not because of our righteousness, but because of God's goodness. And that's a very important reminder that, that it wasn't because Abraham was all that. God chose Abraham out of God's goodness. And he, he responded in faith to that. And God credited that faith that Abraham had as righteousness. And we see that taught throughout the New Testament, re- referred to by Paul and by other teachers. But it's really important that we understand that, that God's favor towards us flows out of His goodness, not out of our righteousness. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. And so he's reminding them that, and he gives the golden calf as an example. Like, remember that one time when I went up the hill to get the Ten Commandments, and you all decided to melt down all the gold that God had given you from the people of Egypt and make an idol to worship instead of me because I had, you know, Moses had been gone for a whole week or two? He gives that as an example. It's not your righteousness. It's God's goodness. And that's given as an, as an exhortation, as a reminder. And then right at the beginning of chapter 10, Moses tells them of the time when he refashioned those stone tablets that contained the law and the Ten Commandments. And that's where we pick up Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22 that we'll be looking at today. We're going to kind of go through them one or two or three verses at a time. So we'll talk a little, or we'll read a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll read a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit. Chapter 10, verse 12, Moses says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. So let's pause there for a second. And I love how this question is posed. And we know that the first two, verse, two words in verse 12, and now, those transition from a history where he's been telling about things that have happened to an application of that history, to a, a teaching, to an exhortation. So he's moving, and he says, and now, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What does God require? And he lists five things, but it's important to see that the, the law isn't listed first. The first thing that we are to do is to fear God. The first thing that Moses says, what does the Lord require of you, is to fear God. But what does that mean? Now, as a little kid, I thought it meant I was supposed to be afraid of God until somebody explained, no, that's not what it means, and they tried to kind of explain it, and it's really difficult. But this passage does such a good job of, of opening this up for us and of clarifying this for us. It's not about fright or terror. It's not that sense of the word that we would translate as fear. It has much more to do with reverence, with humility, and with respect. Reverence, humility, and respect. That's what it means when it says fear God, that we would revere God, that we would see ourselves as beneath God, not as equals, not as even close. We would have the humility to place ourselves under God, and we would have deep deep respect for God 
and for the things of God. And this plays itself out on the positive side in awe and devotion and worship and admiration and veneration, all of these synonyms that that direct us up into worship and awe as we fear God, as we revere God, as we as we respect God, as we look up to God, not looking as him, at Him as an equal, but looking up at Him in a place of humility. And on the negative side, that fear of God would compel us to have a deep desire not to displease Him, not to anger Him, not to offend Him because we hold Him in such high regard, because we worship Him, because we venerate Him, because we revere Him. And so you see that that's what is kind of all bundled up in these two words, fear God. And this passage will make that very, very clear. But there are other passages that speak on this, and and two that came to mind are right in the book of Proverbs. In the first chapter of Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like, that's the beginning of all knowledge. Anything that is truth is rooted in the fear of the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, It tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so there's this interplay between knowledge and wisdom, but both have their genesis in the fear of the Lord. And if we want to live wisely, if we want to live wise lives, if we want to have wisdom, it begins with a fear of the Lord. One commentator has called wisdom the skill in the art of godly living. And so we talked about godly living in a previous sermon series this year. We were talking about godliness and the power of godliness and the value of godliness. And wisdom helps us to see as God sees so that we will do as he says. When we have wisdom, we start to see the world through, through a biblical worldview, through a godly worldview, and we will then do the things that God has said. So wisdom flows out of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of it. And so when we start to talk about fearing God, this is first. This is foremost. This is the first thing that Moses lists when he asks that rhetorical question, what does the Lord require of you? First, it is to fear God. And then he mentions to walk in his ways, which means we live like him. We walk in his ways. We act like him. We ask, what would Jesus do in our context? We love him. We love God. We make a self-sacrificing surrender. We offer our unconditional love and allegiance to God. We serve Him with all our heart and with all our soul, and we observe His commandments. The immediate context would be the Ten Commandments. We observe those commandments, but you notice that that's fifth. He just talked about creating the Ten Commandments, receiving the Ten Commandments, creating the tablets, marking them down. But the first thing that we're to do is to fear God. And I really believe that the, the order is critical. The order is critical. We fear God first. We hold Him in high regard. And as we hold Him in high regard, we walk in His ways, we love Him, we serve Him, and we observe His commandments. And I don't have time in this segment to dive into all four of those. We're going to focus on fearing God. But our bottom line today, if you want to write this down, is that fearing God is a firm foundation for all of life. You get that right. You get that first. You make that the foundation. And on top of that foundation of fearing God, of revering God, of of responding to God in humility, of respecting God, of worshiping Him. And that's first and foremost. Then on top of that, we can walk in His ways. We can love Him, serve Him, and observe 
his commandments. And don't miss this, the end of verse 13. In the context of all that has been said, he says, for your own good. God has only ever wanted our good. He has only ever wanted us to benefit from fearing him, walking in his ways, loving him, serving him, and obeying his commandments. And if we miss this, then that's the snake in the garden coming in and trying to deceive us and trying to draw us away and to try and say, did God really say? Don't forget, this is all for your good. The first blessing and the first benefit of obedience is obedience itself. Like God doesn't tell us to do things that aren't going to be good for us. He only tells us to do things that are good for us. So fearing God is a firm foundation for all of life. Now in the, amen, there we go, we're getting there, we're getting there. There is some interplay now in the remaining verses that we're going to look at, verses 14 through 22, and there's kind of a cycle that Moses goes through where he gives us some reasons why, and then he makes a new exhortation. He gives us some reasons why, and he tells us what to do with it, and he gives us reasons why. And so that's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time at, because these all help us flesh out what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to revere God. And so verses 14 and 15 are some reasons why we should fear the Lord. He says, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord has set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants above all the nations, as it is today. He's basically saying, here's why you should fear God. Here's why you should hold him in high regard. Here's why you should walk in his ways and love him and serve him and obey his commandments because it's all his. He's supreme. It all belongs to him. He created it all. He rules over all of it. He is sovereign over all of it. And guess what? He loves you. Out of all the peoples of the earth, he's chosen you. And if this does not blow our minds, we don't get it. If this doesn't cause you to say, wow, you mean to tell me that the God of all the universe created everything that we can see and a whole bunch of stuff that we can't see and is sovereign over all of that? He takes notice of me. He loves me. He's willing to die for me that I can be a part of his family. Like that should absolutely be a paradigm shifting understanding that we should never get used to. And a good example of that comes from King David in 2 Samuel 7. He's king now. And he says this, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? Even at the pinnacle of life on earth, as a wealthy king of a growing nation that's growing militarily, it's growing economically, it's growing in every way, it's prospering in every way, and he says, Who am I, O Lord? What is my family that you've brought me this far? That's a great daily prayer to remind ourselves that we revere him, that we are humble before him, that we worship him, and we fear and reverence the Lord in that context. Overwhelmed at the awesomeness and the splendor and the majesty of God and overwhelmed at the reality that he looks at us. That he loves us. That he's willing to die for us. And that becomes the motivation for 
our love and our service and our obedience. Not that we do those things out of obligation. Not that we do those things because if we don't, God will get us. And some of us were raised in that context. And you know people who were raised in that context. But even here in the Old Testament, even before centuries before Jesus comes onto the stage, centuries before he starts preaching about the love of God, centuries before Paul starts connecting all the dots for us, God is saying here, this is why. This is why you love me. This is why you fear me. This is why you serve me. And so Moses presents that as a reason why, for verse 12 and 13, And it's also a transition into another exhortation in verse 16. In verse 16, he tells us our response once again. Our response in verse 16 is, Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So there's two commands here. And the first is to circumcise your hearts. Now, circumcision is an Old Testament Testament proclamation or, or edict that God gave that the people of God would be circumcised, and we don't necessarily need to get into all that. Most of us have a, at least a, a broad strokes understanding of what circumcision involves, but to circumcise your hearts means that this wouldn't just be something of our outward physical appearance, this circumcision, that it would be an inward. There would be an inward circumcision as well, that there would be an inward removal of the stubbornness that prevents the heart from properly loving God, that there would be there would be an inward reality that matches that. That this isn't, just, this isn't just a procedure. This isn't just a little surgery that takes place on our outward physical bodies, but that our hearts would be circumcised, that our hearts would be laid bare before God to love Him, to serve Him, to fear Him in reverence, in humility. And I believe the real... The real crux of this command is to put God on the throne of our hearts, not me, not some other thing, but God himself, that he's on the throne of our hearts, that he's calling the shots, that he is directing us, and that our love and our devotion and our reverence and our awe towards God is in the driver's seat of our lives. And the second command there in verse 16 is to be stiff-necked no longer, to to no longer be a stiff-necked people. And it's a great word picture because Somebody that's stiff-necked, and I'm not just talking about sleeping wrong the night before, I'm talking about refusing to bow. A stiff-necked person bows before no man. A stiff-necked person doesn't bow before God, doesn't hold God in humility, doesn't hold themselves in humility before God would be a better way of saying that, but a stiff-necked person doesn't bow. And over and over in the prophets, God says, you are a stiff-necked people. You don't bow before me. You don't hold me in high regard. You just have a stiff neck. And I've encountered stiff neck people as a pastor. They don't, they, they, they just want to come in and hear a few things that sound like something they've heard before, and then they move on with their lives. They're not really interested in changing. There's not a lot of humility. There's not a lot of openness to what God might be revealing to them in the here and now. Stiff neck people don't humbly recognize and submit to God's authority, to God's will, or to God's ways. And so Moses is saying, don't refuse to bow to him. Don't seek to do it your own way. If I can give you some advice as you move in, circumcise your hearts. There's a command. Circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked. Don't do it your own way. And now in verse 17 and 18, we have another justification, another reasoning, another set of examples for why 
We're not going to be stiff-necked. And we're going to circumcise our hearts. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He's the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. So here's some more reasons why we should do all of the above, more reasons why we should fear God, why we should serve God, why we should love God, why we should obey His commandments, because He is the Lord, the God of gods. He's great and mighty and awesome. He shows no impartiality, accepts no bribes. Basically, He's saying He's supreme, He's just, He's fair, and He's good. And if that's not enough, look, He doesn't just love you, right? See what it says next in verse 18? He doesn't just love you. He doesn't just love the pretty people. He loves the orphans. He loves the widows. He loves the aliens. He provides for them too. This great and awesome God, this good and glorious God, He is good to all. He is gracious to all. Yes, He has chosen you, Moses is saying, and He's chosen us to be His covenant people through Christ. But He's done that for others as well. He's done that and He has been favorably inclined towards others and God is providing for them as well. And so verse 19 and 20 tell us what we're to do in response to that. Do you see the the back and forth here? Verse 19 and 20, and you are to love those who are aliens for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. So our response to verses 17 and 18 is that we love those who are outside as well. This isn't just a New Testament concept. This is an Old Testament concept. God is saying you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens. Remember what it was like? Remember what it was like when you worked seven days a week, sun up to sundown, when you were beaten, when you were mistreated? Remember what it was like? Don't do that to other people now that you're on top. Don't do that to the people that are on the bottom now that you're on the top. Love them. Serve them. Be kind to them. Be gracious to them. Fear the Lord and serve Him. Don't forget what it was like to be an alien. Practice the golden rule. Treat others the way that you want to be treated. And he basically says you love God by loving your neighbor. Serve God by serving your neighbor. That to say you love God and you hate your neighbor, John said, that doesn't compute. If anyone loves God yet hates his brother... The truth of God is not in him, is what 1 John tells us. And to say that we love God and we're going to serve God, but we don't actually ever serve anybody else, that doesn't compute. God wants our love for him to lead us to love others. He wants our service to him to involve serving others and being engaged, both within the body, within the community, within the fellowship, and outside the fellowship. And so this is where this gets real practical for us is that we love God by loving others, by showing love to others, by self-sacrificing surrender for other people. By serving God, we serve other people. And this one stands out to me because we're having a heck of a time right now with people serving. Our serving teams have shrunk. We're still dealing with COVID-sized serving teams, but we're out of COVID. We have more people coming to services. We have more kids coming to Kids Way, but we don't have we don't have our serving teams bouncing back to what they were pre-COVID. We need some pre-COVID-sized serving teams going into the fall, going into September and October, because we don't have enough. And so the few people that are serving are starting to get a little burned out. 
Like, oh, I'm on the schedule again. I was on the schedule last week and the week before. And so if I could make application here, if there's some people that were serving in a ministry position in 2019 and early 2020, but you're not serving now, we need you. We need you as we continue to reach people for Christ and we give them a place to belong and we help them grow in their faith. That takes people. That takes people who love God and have committed to serving God to love kids and serve kids, to love the people coming through our front doors and serve kids, to love coffee and serve coffee if you want to play that out a little bit. But if you've taken a step back for COVID and that was understandable, we need you to take a step back in. We need to take a step forward. We need to build up some of these teams. We need people, and you can take the connection card out right now and check the box that says, I'll help in Kids Way, or I'll help anywhere is needed. We'll find a place for you. I'll recommend that you be patient, and we'll use the next couple of weeks because we got teams going to camp and those types of things, and so I'd hate for you to check the box, and Monday comes around, and nobody called me. I guess they don't really need it. Pastor Mark preached about it. Be patient. We'll, we will definitely get to you. If you are willing to help us to serve in one of those areas, we will definitely be following up with you before the summer is out and helping you be engaged in that. And so to bring things back to our passage here, verse 21 and 22, kind of tie a bow on this whole passage by giving us still more reasons to love and to serve and to fear God. And at this point, it's almost like an infomercial, you know, but wait, there's more. If you need one or two or three more reasons to love God and to serve God and to fear God, here's a few more, Moses is saying, because he is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. He's talking to people who were there, who saw it happen. And you might spend a few minutes this weekend, spend a few minutes this afternoon writing down some of the great and awesome wonders that you saw with your own eyes, the healings, the salvations, the baptisms, the people that were so far from God that there was no hope that got brought into the family of God, that got their lives transformed, that are now serving God. There are people that should come to mind. And if there aren't, then that means they're still out there waiting for you to invite them to church, waiting for you to share your story with them. And verse 22, your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's saying in verse 21, not only is he your praise, not only is he your God, not only is he a personal and relational God, your protector, your provider, your source, and your sustainer. Verse 22 is kind of the icing on the cake. He's saying, don't forget this. Seventy people went down into Egypt. That was, that was Jacob. That was the whole clan of Jacob at that time. Jacob's 12 sons, wives, kids, servants. Seventy go into Egypt. Most scholars recon, kind of reconcile about two million came out of Egypt. So even in the darkest days, even in the oppression, even in the challenges and the trials, God was working and God was blessing the people and they were growing. And as they come out of Egypt, the 70 that went in have now become 2 million. And they're a whole nation. They're not just a little clan. They're a whole nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so when you take this whole passage that begins with this exhortation to fear God first and foremost... 
And then you look at the interplay between the reasons behind that and the exhortations that follow with them. This is very not, this is very much not a message of fear God or else. Fear God or he will get you. Be terrified and afraid of God or he will punish you. This is a revere God, love God, serve God, hold God in high regard because he has done these things. Fearing God is a firm foundation for all of life. We have ample reasons to do so. To fear Him means to hold Him in high regard, to worship Him, to admire Him. And we do it in these verses we've talked about. We fear God by walking in His ways, by living like Him, by loving Him, serving Him with all our heart and soul, by observing His commands circumcising our hearts, bowing our heads, loving others, serving God as we serve others because he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. He's relational. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's just and he's good. And he longs to bless us. He longs to love us. He longs to provide for us and to protect us. And fearing God is the foundation for all of that. When we fear God, we open the door to all kinds of blessing and protection and provision. And so as we close today this this message, I want to encourage you to respond in faith to some aspect of this message, to some element of this message that stands out to you, that you feel the Holy Spirit whispering to you, that's for you. Pay attention. Lean in. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your presence among us. We are grateful for your word. And we're grateful for the way that your word speaks to us, that it challenges us, that it exhorts us. Lord, help us to fear you as as your word declares we should. Help us to hold you in high regard. Help us to put you first every moment of every day. Not just at key moments or not just occasionally or not just once a week. But that we would revere you. That we would trust you. That we would obey you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Removing all doubt that you desire for us to be with you. If there's anyone listening to this that that is hearing for the first time that there's a God that loves like that, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would wash over them. They would have a deep, deep desire to lean into you, to know more about you, to surrender their lives to you, and to spend the remainder of their days following you and serving you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.